Third Sunday of Advent, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. We are going to have fun today. I'm going to have fun. I don't know about you. But we are going to have fun today, okay? Luke, Luke chapter 2, we're going to read uh, verses 1. Eh, well, we read as much as I want to, okay? We'll, we'll, just, we'll just go until I get tired of reading and then we'll stop, okay? So Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That verse, as they say, will preach. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. See, the reason why the Christmas story falls flat to us is because we have no idea what the world was like when Jesus was born. So what I decided to do this year was I read some some books. I read some books, okay, to get a feel of the context of the world in which Jesus was born. Now, I had done this in the past, but I really, really dug in this year. A handful of books that I read, those of you that are interested in these kinds of things, you're welcome to come and not borrow my books but get the titles and the authors. You go buy your books yourself, okay? I have a rule. I don't, I don't you know, lend my books to people. Okay, so anyway. Uh, Jesus and Empire, the Kingdom of God and the New World, Disorder is one. The First Christmas is another book. God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome, Then and Now, was another book that I read. And The Greco-Roman World of the New Testament, Exploring the Background of Early Christianity, was another. So those of you that are really interested in this kind of stuff, you're welcome to... Get the titles and the authors and read it for yourself, okay? What was the world like when Jesus was born? What was the world like when Jesus was born? When the author Luke writes his gospel and he throws in a name like Caesar Augustus, he's not just throwing a name for you and I to just kind of read and go, oh, that's nice. He is, he, there's a point for him to make. When he mentions a census that was taken, 
When you and I hear about a census, we think about filling out a boring form and sending it in. And that's that. In Jesus' time, when they heard about a census, riots broke out and people got killed. Why? Because Roman census reminded everybody who ran the world, how they ran the world, who got crushed in the process, and who profited. What was the world like when Jesus was born? You hear today, this morning, you go on census, empires, taxes. It's Christmas time, Peter. I want to hear some sermons of warm fuzzies, you know. But it's because we've ruled out emperors and taxes and senses that we've missed the entire point of Christmas. Christmas, you guys, is not a story about us escaping this real world and waiting for Jesus to return so we can go to heaven. Christmas is a story about this God who comes into the real world with real problems. Christmas is a story about a real God coming in to deal with problems that deal with issues of politics and economics and taxes and bloodthirsty wars. The world in which Jesus came, the birth of Jesus Christ, and it's, 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 it's telling, is a world in which God says, I have come to deal with real problems in the real world. A real God has intervened in human history to deal with evil, injustice, oppression, taxes, and emperors, and empires. Are you with me so far? The Christmas story is birthed out of this context, that's why if we had lived during the time of Jesus, we wouldn't read Luke chapter 2 once a year and go, that's nice. We would want to go back to Luke chapter 2 again and again and again. We go, this is great news of great joy for all the people. Because God has intervened in human history. And check this out. He has brought rescue and salvation with skin on it. Hmm? You with me so far? With skin on it, people. Real problems in the real world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Christmas is a time in which you remember that Jesus Christ came to reconcile sinners to God so that we who are estranged from God can be connected to him. But Christmas is good news for people who've lost their jobs. Christmas is good news for people whose homes are being foreclosed on. Christmas is good news for people who are struggling to put food on the table. Christmas is good news for those who are saying... Is this world always going to be like this? Huh? Okay, you're, you're sort of catching on, okay? Christmas is about God intervening in the real world. Today, it's going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. Imagery, okay? I realize I can't get it all, so this is going to be a two-part series. So today, you're going to walk out there going, but what does it mean for me? And I just want to go, can we not worry about you just for one Sunday? Okay? Because we want to be able to say, because we want to say, what did it mean for them? And the next week, we're going to go, what does it mean for us? Got it? What did it mean for them? I, I, random. Last night, I noticed that uh, the Matrix trilogy is on TNT. So it's going to kind of feel like when you saw the first one. Remember Matrix? You kind of go, it was really good, but... There's got to be more, <laughs> right? There is more. There's Matrix 2, but only part two because part three, frankly, was a waste of time, right? So we stopped at part two, all right? Sorry if that's like an inside thing for people, okay? So we're going to stop at part two. This week, what does it mean for them? Next week, what does it mean for us? All right, so let's dig in. 
Okay, let's dig in. The ancient Jews lived under the Roman Empire. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, under one empire after another for about 500 years. By the time Jesus is born, who is ruling the Roman Empire? Luke talks about him. Caesar Augustus is Roman emperor, and he's been ruling for about 25 years. This guy rules the Roman world from Britain to India, and he has done what nobody else had done for 200 years. He has brought peace under one rule of the Roman Empire, but it was peace at a great cost, paid in cash by people that they had conquered. There's going to be lots of quotes, lots of history today, okay? So let me throw up a quote. This is is by an Italian historian named uh, Arnaldo Mamaliano, okay? Yeah, it is that Arnaldo, okay? This is what he says. He says, he gave peace as long as it was consistent with the interests of the empire and the myth of his own glory. He's talking about Augustus, Caesar Augustus. So the question, how did the Roman Empire rule the world? Next quote, please. This is a quote by a Chalcedonian chieftain named Tacitus. Here's what he said about the Romans. The Romans are plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are rapacious. How do you pronounce that? Rapacious. If they poor, they, they lust for dominion. Not east or west has say to them, they rob, they butcher, plunder, and they call it empire. Where they make a desolation, they call it peace. When Jesus is born, they're accustomed to Roman soldiers coming through their towns, burning villages, enslaving the healthy and killing the sick. You get a picture. How did the Roman Empire rule the world? First, military. Military. The, Roman, the Romans controlled the world through force and through violence. By the way, on a side note, I'm not making a political statement today. Okay? So don't read too much into this. Okay? Like when I talk about empire, don't be sitting there going, empire, America. No, don't do that, okay? I'm not doing that today. I'm just telling you because there's like two of you going, is he saying what I think he's saying? I'm not, okay? I'm just teaching the Bible. (laughs) The Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers, okay? At the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire, the Rome had 28 legions, each composed of five to 6,000 fighting engineers. Do your math. How many people is that? It's about... 200,000 soldiers. They were called fighting engineers. Why? Their first job was kill and conquer, but their second job was build an infrastructure that could control the people they conquered. So these people were adept at building all-weather ports, roads, and bridges. Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century, in his book Jewish War says, a typical pack for a Roman soldier had two items for war, seven items for building, for construction. So once that all-weather military infrastructure was in place, it made travel really easy, so commerce flourished, but it also made it very easy for them to squash revolts. A Roman general named Germanicus ruthlessly slaughters the population across the Rhine. This is what a guy named Tacitus says about Germanicus. The aim was to punish, avenge, and terrify. For 50 miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. Roman general Pompey, on an inscription in the temple of Minerva in Rome, he boasts of over 12 million subjects in surrender and 1,500 towns and forts. Roman general Titus, Titus, 
This is from Josephus in his book, The War. He says, they were accordingly beaten and subjected to torture of every description and then crucified opposite walls. Some 500 or more were captured daily. Titus hoped that the spectacle might induce the Judean to surrender for fear that continued resistance would involve them in a similar fate. The soldiers out of rage and hatred amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures, which is called what? Crucifixion. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses nor crosses for the bodies. Are you getting a picture? These are people who invented the crucifixion. That a contest to see who could invent the most, most uh, torturous, most brutal form of torture in the world. And they called crucifixions for demonstration effect. In other words, they said, revolt and see what happens. This is the reason why. And all of a sudden, you guys, the New Testament Bible comes alive. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1? He says, Christ was publicly exhibited before your eyes as crucified. People reading there going, yeah, I know what that's like. I've seen hundreds, thousands of people hung on crosses. Cassius, general. He saves 30,000 people in and around Terakea, which was also called Magdala. Jesus had a disciple named Mary the Magdalene. They're disciples of Jesus who are from towns and villages in which Romans came, pillaged, plundered. These are towns very familiar with the Roman Empire. Cassius enslaves 30,000 slaves. Next general, Verus. Verus. In the year 4 AD, a, a, a rebel named Judas leads a revolt in the city of Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee, which was only about 3.5 miles away from Nazareth. Verus sends to squash Judas in the year 4. This rebellion, three legions, 18,000 soldiers, 2,000 cavalry, 1,500 infantry. It's what you call an overkill, okay? Small, tiny Judean, Judean village. Three legions. And what does he do? He proceeds to hunt down and crucifies 2,000 men. Question, what do you think happened to adjacent villages near Sepphoris? Like Nazareth, 3.5 miles away, which is hour and a half walk. What do Roman soldiers do when they come and say, you want to revolt? And what happens to our villages? Jesus grew up in Nazareth, hour and a half away from Sepphoris. Or 20 years before, everybody in Nazareth talked about the day that the Romans came. The day that the Romans came. You remember? The day that the Romans came. Yeah. I remember that. Who lived, who died. Who got away and who didn't. I found real interesting one of the books. The Gospels end with Joseph, Jesus' father. In the very first parts of the Gospels. And the story isn't told for the rest. Remember, he lived in Nazareth. And so one of the historians just kind of conjectures saying, maybe Mary, while Jesus is just a little boy, takes him up on top of the hill and looks down and says, the day that the Romans came, the men in our town, the men in our villages, either were killed or taken as slaves. Quote, Josephus War. He, that is virus, put to the sword a thousand of the youth who had not already escaped, made prisoners of women and children, gave his soldiers license to plunder the property, and then set fire to the houses. The able-bodied fled, the feeble perished, and everything left was consigned to the flames. Are you getting a picture of what life was like in the region of Galilee in the first century? 
Historian Tacitus again says this, to plunder, to butcher, to steal. These things, they misname empire and they make a desert and they call it peace. This is what the Romans said. They came and said, Caesar has given you peace. And the people are going, peace? This is peace? Question, how did the Roman Empire rule the world? Military. Second, how did the Roman Empire rule the world? Economic. How does Caesar expand his empire? Force and violence. Who expands his empire through force and violence? The military. How does he maintain control of the military? He pays them. How does he pay the military? You raise taxes and you tax the subjects. By the way, how do you find out how many people are in your empire so you can find out how much taxes you can raise? You do a census. So here's Caesar expanding his empire, paying his soldiers to make his empire bigger. Remember, I told you, don't let your mind wander off too much and go, this is what I, this is scriptural. Money to everyday people paying taxes to make your empire bigger. Some believe that Jews in or near the region of Galilee in the first century are paying somewhere 80 to 90% taxes. So that Caesar can make his empire bigger. How? By destroying anybody who opposes him. That's why. Acts chapter 5 verse 37. We find this nice little nugget. Look. Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. Census. Taxes. Why? So he can expand his empire. We're not going to take it anymore. Really? We're going to send our legions. We'll see if you're going to pay taxes or not. Imagine the context. Imagine what the world is like. You're a good Jew living in your homeland. It's an agricultural society. You farm the land to make a living. You farm the land that was given to you by your father, his grandfather, and going generations back all the way to Joshua when they entered the promised land. But you're getting taxed on your land. You continue to produce so that you can tax it, but no longer can you continue to pay the taxes. So what happens? Eventually, you lose your land. What happens if you lose your land? You can no longer support your family. You have to find a trade or a tool that you can do to be able to make a living to pay, uh, to to be able to put food on the family. That means a skill or trade takes you wherever the work is. Joseph is where when Jesus is born? In Nazareth. He is from where initially? Bethlehem, his hometown, a marginally agricultural area. What's a guy who is born and raised in Bethlehem going to be living in Nazareth? What's Joseph's occupation? He is a carpenter. Why? Why is he no longer farming the land that his father and grandfather farmed? Why is he traveling to different places with the skill as a carpenter to put food on the family? The context in which the birth of Jesus Christ takes place is time in which people are struggling economically, physically. It's a time in which people are saying, how am I going to put food on the table for my family? Can anybody relate? You could relate to the Christmas story this morning if you're somebody who's lost your job and you're going, am I going to find the job? You could relate to the Christmas story and understand the context this morning if you're going, Economically, I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table for my family. You can understand the Christmas story if you're saying, I'm continuing to pay taxes. The rich continue to get richer and the poor continue to get poor. How am I going to make a living? Where am I going to? You could relate to the Christmas story. 
It is a time of enormous financial economic burden. Enormous hardship. And to make it, to make, and make it worse, you've got the Roman Empire saying, Caesar, Augustus, has given you peace. Caesar will make your life okay. And you're going, my life isn't okay? Are you with me? You're getting a sense of the context. How did the Roman Empire rule the world? Economically. Third and last background. How did the Roman Empire rule the world? Ideological or political. Who ran the Roman Empire? A series of Caesars. Let me put up some quotes up here, okay? Divine. Son of God. God. God from God. Redeemer. Liberator. Lord. Savior of the world. And if I were to ask you the question, who is that referring to? All the good Christians go, that's talking about Jesus. Before Jesus was ever born. Ever came on the scene? Before Paul had written. Ever written a letter? Before Christian ever come on the scene, these were titles of who? Caesar. Augustus. Caesar. Augustus. Real quick, brief recap, history. Who was the first Caesar? Guy named Julius Caesar. Remember him? Remember him? Remember him? Some scholars believe that he was too busy inventing a salad and working on a haircut, to rule the empire. So under his leadership, as a terrible joke, terrible, terrible joke, under his empire, or he tried to rule the empire, he rules until 44 BC, but what happens to Caesar? He gets betrayed by who? Brutus and 60 other conspirators, and he gets stabbed to death. Do you remember that? History, brief history, right? Caesar, Julius, fails to bring the empire together. So a civil war breaks out for 20 years. They are absolutely destroying the Mediterranean world in the process of its own destruction. And in September 2nd, 31 BC, it all ended on the Ionian Sea off of Cape Octium in northern Greece. Why? Julius, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, defeats Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and brings the empire together. He soon changes his name. To Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius, now is entitled in Latin Augustus. By the way, you could thank the month of Augustus and his name to him, which means the one who is divine. Or in Greek, Sebastus, the one who is to be worshipped. Caesar Augustus. We'll come back to him. Second, Third emperor is Tiberius, who rules during the time of Jesus' ministry. That's why you hear Tiberius a lot. And then there was a guy named Caligula. We'll just skip him, okay? And then there was a guy named... And, and then there was... Because he... Head wound, he didn't do much, you know. So we go on to the next guy whose name was Nero. Check this out, you guys. Nero, 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 Emperor Nero. In, in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we're told about a beast who loses a battle in heaven and is cast down to earth where he rules the world. We're told in Revelation 13, 18 that the number of the beast is 666. And using an ancient Jewish technique for encoding a name into number called Gematria, the number 666 decodes to Caesar Nero. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoy it. It gets better, though. It gets better. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, right? Book of Revelation and these other books kind of come into focus a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Nero rules empire from 54 to 69. He was the first to really persecute Christians, Peter and Paul. And Mary were executed during Nero's reign. No, they weren't. Peter and Paul were executed. Vespasian is the next emperor. Titus is a guy who destroys the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, we thank Nathan Noonan for these wonderful pictures in 60. And then, and then, we'll end with this emperor. And then we'll go back. A guy named Domitian. Why am I talking about Domitian? Domitian comes on the scene and says, if you want to do business, anybody that wants to do business in the Roman Empire, you have to worship and acknowledge me as God. 
So in order to do business, sell, buy things in the Roman Empire, you had to go to the marketplace, offer sacrifices to the god Domitian, okay? And many scholars believe that the people that actually did that were given a mark. Hmm? Given a mark. And because he came via land and sea and claimed to be God, the Jews called him a beast. So Domitian is the beast who came via land and sea who said you must have the mark, the mark of the beast, in order to sell and buy in the Roman Empire. Whole other sermon series. Caesar Augustus. Let's go back to him. Caesar Augustus. To know the real Christmas story. Caesar Augustus. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Again, he's the guy that brings the Roman Empire together. In the ancient city of Preen in modern Turkey, you go there today, you'll see this inscription in the temple. The good news about the birthday of a divine child who will save the world from destruction by establishing permanent peace. Who is this talking about? Jesus? No. Who is this child? His name is Caesar Augustus. By, BC, by 9 BC, people are calling Caesar Augustus. He is the savior of the world for bringing peace and ending civil war. The parliament soon declares him God incarnate on earth. Caesar Augustus is God in the flesh on earth. Temples are being built in his honor. Prayers and sacrifices being offered to the God Augustus. Poet Virgil says this, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. So here's the Roman Empire. They're believing in this guy who says he is the savior of the world. The divine child who was born who will bring peace to the Roman world. The one who is to come. And by the way, John the Baptist's disciples go to Jesus and what's their question? The question is in Matthew eleven three: are you the one who is to come? Are you getting a text? All of a sudden the Bible comes alive, right? Are you the one who is to come? Why? Because you're living in a world where people are saying, Caesar Augustus is the one. No, he can't be. He, this can't be. Are you, Jesus, the one who is to come? Virgil. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead in the golden age for the blessing of renewed humanity. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. One of the propaganda slogans during this time is salvation is found in no one else. Save Augustus. (laughs) You want to be saved? Believe in Augustus. You want to be reconciled to the gods? Believe in Augustus. You want to be renewed? You have to trust that Caesar Augustus is God come to earth to free from fear and your sins, to set you free and to provide you new life. Author Propertius. O Savior of the world, Augustus, now conquer a sea. The land is already yours. My bow battles before you. My bow battles before you. In Meyer of Lycia on the coast of Turkey, which Paul spent some time in Acts 27, 5, is this inscription. Divine Augustus, Caesar, son of God, emperor of land and the benefactor, Savior of the whole world. Caesar is not just Savior of Rome. He's the Savior of what? The whole world. All of humanity who has come to bring peace and salvation. There is no other name under heaven. Maybe this is the reason why Paul and his disciples are getting arrested. Because they're going around saying stuff like this. Acts chapter 4 verse 25. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind. You're talking about Caesar, right? Mm. By which we must be saved. Are you tracking? Coins. Lastly, coins. We're the new styles of the day. Why? Most people are illiterate. And so if you want to get out a message, a slogan... You would mint a coin because the coin would travel throughout the economy. And on every coin is this picture of Caesar with these inscriptions, Divi Filius, which literally means the son 
of God. So let me ask you something. In this world, and Grace, you can come on up. Where are you, Grace? You can come on up. In this world, if the Christian message was, Jesus has come, Savior of the world, to forgive you of your sins, so when you die, you can go to heaven. People would have said, what? The context in which the birth of Jesus takes place. They're living in a world in which Caesar is Lord. And they're saying there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved than that of Caesar. Caesar rules the world in peace. So bow down and worship Caesar, the one who is going to make your life okay, but your life isn't. And during this time, the Jews are living with this tremendous sense of despair. During this time, the Jews believe that they were God's chosen people, and they're living under tremendous sense of, and even a sense of fatalism is creeping in. Can you imagine? Since the fatalism is creeping in, as this everyday Jewish people are living their lives, and they're asking this question, they're asking this question, some of you are asking, which is, is Caesar always going to rule? Is life always going to be like this? Is he always going to claim to be God? And nothing happens? Is the world in which we live as rich get richer and richer and the poor get poorer and poorer? Are things always going to be like this? You're having a hard time putting food on the table. And by the way, that's why Jesus comes along and he says, this is how you ought to pray. Give us this, our what? Daily bread. Oh, that meant something. You or someone you know is in huge debt because you can't pay off any more taxes and you're either being slaved, enslaved, or, and Jesus comes along and he says, and this is how you ought to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. Oh. You're living in a world of real pain, of real injustice, of real chaos, of real violence. The first Christians are living in a time and place where the Roman soldiers would come to your village and they'd say, gee, Caesar is Lord. Yes? And if you said, yes, Caesar is Lord, you would be spared from slaughter, but they would establish a center of worship for Caesar and you would have to worship him. But if they came along and said, Caesar is Lord, yes? And you said, no. Then either you were killed or enslaved. Time in which the first Christians are living in is a time in which Caesar rules and reigns. So among Jewish people, there is this developing profound sense of doubt. God, if you're so good, then why is Augustus still on the throne? God, if you're so good, then why do you allow him to call himself God? God, if you're so good, why do the haves continue to have more and the poor continue to get poor? God, if you're so good, then why don't you do something where the righteous continue to prosper, uh, evil and the wicked continue to prosper, and the righteous continue to suffer? God, if you're so good, Why cancer? If you're so good, why divorce? If you're so good, why am I losing my job? If you're so good, anybody asking? Their questions are our questions. Their questions are our questions. Things that they're wrestling with of real pain in a real world are questions that we're asking today. And they're asking God, how long is this going to go on? People are starving, saying, God, why do you allow stuff like this to happen? How long is our world going to be the way it is? God, how long are they going to march through our villages, march through the world? And they're saying they're bringing peace, peace, 
peace through violence, but where is peace through justice? The time in which the birth of Christ takes place is a time in which there's profound sense of despair, doubt, fatalism, profound sense in which people are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and they're sick of waiting and waiting, saying, God, where are you? Anybody ask that? Now check this out. (laughs) Because it is into this world, into this context, that the revolutionary message of Christmas comes. Are you tracking? Oh, you're not yet, but you will. It is into this context that the Christmas story comes because in this massive empire, in a small corner of it, a small, marginalized, oppressed, persecuted group of ethnic minority folks, the angel comes and says, there is going to be a baby being born. I know. See, for us, it's like, nah, for them, what? The angels message, a baby being born. And you know what? You know what? Check this out. This baby has something to say about who rules. This baby has something to say about who is Savior, about who is Lord. The angel's message in Luke chapter 2 verse 11 is what? Today in the town of David, a what? A savior. And guys, when they heard it, it's not, oh, we're fuzzy. They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. A savior is born. He is the Messiah. He is what? Lord. My translation, Caesar is going down. The clock is ticking. Caesar is going down. Why? A new king is on his way. And a new kingdom is on his way. A new king with a new kingdom. And this kingdom is not about injustice, oppression, and favoritism to the rich, the proud, and the strong. This king comes with a kingdom of what? Justice, of peace, and of love. Daniel Spot, are you feeling me? Are you feeling me this morning? Because I thought about you all week as I prepared this sermon, you know. A new king is coming, and he is in favor of the strong, the proud. Matter of fact, his heart is bent towards the weak, the oppressed, the marginalized. And his heart especially goes out to them. Are you feeling me? Are you feeling the A new king with a new kingdom. Luke is asking rhetorically. He's not asking. He's going, who's Savior? Uh Uh-huh. Who's Lord? Uh Uh-huh. That's why the angel Gabriel says to Mary in chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overwhelm you. The Holy One will be the Son of God. You know what he's saying? He's going, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. There's this dude in the empire who thinks he's Son of God. But you know what? I know somebody who is Son of God of the Most High. He nothing. This is why Mary, the Magnificat, oh, oh, that stuff is good. Read that when you go home today. Mary Magnificat, she says what? Mary said, my soul glorifies, what? 
the Lord. And that's not just Lord. That is a powerful, revolutionary, subversive message. And my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God. What? My Savior. She is saying, Caesar isn't Lord. Caesar isn't Savior. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. 13-year-old girl starts a revolution. Why? Because soon after, a group of people start saying, Jesus is what? His Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus. Caesar? No, he's going down. Caesar. It's going down. Jesus is Lord. Caesar's days are outnumbered. Jesus is Lord. By the way, can you see now why people got killed for having a copy of Luke's gospel? If you're Caesar, do you like this story? Do you like this story if you're Caesar? No. What is Mary saying? Mary's saying, oh, I've seen the most powerful man in the largest kingdom in the world. But you know what? God's on the move. He not much. I've seen the most powerful man. And you know what? They're expanding the empire and they're about oppression justice and they think they're strong. But you know what? I've seen what God can do. He's not all that. 13-year-old girl starts a revolution. Uh, Can you see why this was such good news of great joy for them? Church, the Christmas story is about a God who shows up in human history and he literally says, enough! I have seen enough. A new king is on the scene with his new kingdom. And this kingdom is not about crushing people. It's about loving people. A kingdom that isn't about bondage, but about freedom. A kingdom that isn't built on oppressing people, but setting the oppressed, what? Free. Is it wonder why Jesus comes? In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says what? I have come to approach good news to the poor. I'm here to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. Can you see what the message is? Oh, this is so good. The Christmas story that those first heard it was good news in every way. And yes, if you're sitting here going, well, Peter, what about salvation from our sins and forgiveness? We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But that small part of the good news of the gospel, amen? It's a revolutionary that says it is good news in every way, politically, economically, in every single way. Can I get it, amen? Oh, this is good news. The gospel message of the Christmas story is her coming as St. Mary saying, I know Caesar's ruling the world, but you know what? Where is he now? Remnants, rubbles of temple. We see his picture in history books. Why? Julius Caesar died. Caesar Augustus died. Tiberius died. Can you see why one of the major slogans of the early Jesus movement is, our dude, he what? He lives. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Your dad, dead. His dad, dead. You see a pattern. You see a pattern. Our dude, 2,000 years later, we, along with 2.3 billion people in the world, today will proclaim him Lord and Savior. Are you tracking? Are you tracking? Oh, Michael, are you tracking? Oh, man, this is the story of Christmas. Who here needs to be reminded that Caesar doesn't have the last word? Who here is reminded today that Caesar doesn't have the last word? Emperors think they rule the world. No, they don't. God is on the move. Anybody struggling with a sense of fatalism and doubt? 
Anybody struggling with a sense of despair? Anybody saying, oh, it's not always going to be like this. Here is good news. Today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior and Lord has been born to you this day. And either that is the most glorious, concrete, skin salvation rescue for the whole world, or Richard Dawkins is right. We ought to go home, have a drink, and just call it a day. But if God is alive, and his kingdom is on the move, and things are a-changing, it is good news of great joy for all the people. Anybody to be reminded that Caesar doesn't have the last word? Christmas story, you guys, is about a God who comes. Not mumbling some random spiritual slogans. Christmas story is not about a God who remains detached in heaven and says, someday when you die, you can come join me. And your spirit will float around, hang out with the angels, you know, listen to the harps music, and we'll... Christmas story says, the son of God came down to earth, took on flesh and bone, lived in the muck of the real world, and he dies, and then he rises again, and today reigns as Lord. And he's up there going, folks, Caesar don't have the last word. Oppressors don't have the last word. Emperors don't have the last word. Who has the last word? Is this good news? Oh, this is great news. This is great news. This is great news of great joy for all people. I want to tell you today, if you're struggling with a sense of despair, doubt, and you're going, where's hope for me? Where's hope for me? The hope is that today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior and Lord has been born. You're going, economically, financially, politically. When are things going to change? People who always have are always going to have more. And the evil and the wicked will always flourish. What about the righteous? And we are reminded today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior and Lord has been born. And I'm going to tell you today, just as Caesar doesn't have the last word, AIDS will not have the last word. Evil will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Suffering and pain will not have the last word. God will have the last word. This is what it meant for them. What does it mean for us? Oh, can you begin to see? It's enormously important for us, doesn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Because if the world is saying, Savior, Lord Jesus, not Caesar, well, what does that look like precisely? What does that look like? It is our job and mission to show the world that Jesus rules. So the world is asking, what would the world look like if Caesar Augustus was no longer on the throne, but God was on the throne? What would it look like? Can they see? And I'll leave you with this quote from St. Augustine. We'll come back to this next week. He says, in this regard, God without us will not, and we without God cannot. The watching world today, as they look at a world of brutal force and violence to say, is there hope? Is there hope? Is there hope? And the answer to those of us who are Christ followers is yes. And the hope is what will we do? What will we do? God without us will not. We without God cannot. God 
God, we thank you and we praise you. Oh. God, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you and we praise you. We thank you and we praise you. God, I pray that for many of us, from this point on, every time we use the word Lord and Savior, that they would have a different meaning. That it would come alive. That it would mean something entirely, totally different than what we walked in here with. That whenever we declare that you are the Savior of the world and that salvation is found in nothing else, God, along with this tremendous salvation of our souls and renewal of our spirit and transformation, may the watching world see a revolution that began 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus. Oh, come. Oh, come. Let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore. Oh, come, let us adore. Oh, come, let us adore. Here's how I'd like to end today's service. If we could all stand from where we are. Christmas is a time in which it seems as though despair, doubt, and fatalism not only exist but get accentuated because of the situation and circumstances of life. So as we are all standing together and we join our hands across our aisles to those who are standing next to us because I want us to begin practicing what we'll talk about next week which is how to be the tangible body of Christ in the kingdom. So what I'm going to ask right now is spend about a moment, a minute or so, praying for those that are standing next to you. And lift them just a simple prayer. That is, God, if this person is struggling with a sense of despair, doubt, fatalism, if this person is wondering, God, where are you? God, when is this going to end? If that person is wondering, God, how long is this going to go on? That you would pray for that person, that that person would be encouraged, reminded, and assured that Caesars of this world will not have the last word. The pain, suffering, injustice, and evil will not have the last word. God will have the last word. So just go ahead and lift up a prayer right now. Right now for your brother and your sister. Right now for those that are standing next to you. Pray prayers of faith. Let's go ahead and do it together. God, we thank you. I praise you, God, for. And Lord, I pray and lift up, God, my brothers and my sisters in the sanctuary, God. God, that you would begin to lift them up. God, that you would begin, Lord God, to strengthen. You would begin, Lord God, to strengthen the feeble arms. You would begin, Lord God. You would begin, Lord God. You begin, Lord God, to fill them, empower them with your spirit, God. To anyone, God, in despair. Anyone, God, struggling with doubt. Anyone, God, out there struggling, Lord God, of when, God, how long, God, that you would remind them today, Lord God, of what this season represents. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Hallelujah. And God, as we leave this place today, 
God, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would go with us and that you would remind us the power of your spirit of this truth that is life, that is bread, that is wine, that is food to our souls. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is God. Caesar will not have the last word. God will have the last word. May the news that brought joy and strength, God, to the first Christians bring joy and strength to our souls. The world as we know it will not always be. The kingdom of God is on the move. The kingdom of God is on its way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, and all God's people said, have a great week. We'll see you back here next week.